a Lion Fury production. Welcome to Wolf and Cub Film Club, a film review show with a twist. What's the twist, you ask? Well, it's me and me dad. He's the wolf, and I'm the cub. There's another thing. We're both filmmakers. Wolf, Steve Thomas, makes documentaries and is a film school senior lecturer. And Cub, that's me, Danny Thomas, am also a writer and an actor. So grab a chock top, sit back and relax as we discuss two films per episode, often with a common theme between them. On this episode, in part one, we examine the recently released doco Pelé, about arguably the best football the world has produced. Then in part two, we discuss a hybrid doco, Dick Johnson is Dead, an Oscar-nominated film about a daughter helping her father prepare for the end of his life. A little warning, there are spoilers. Enjoy the show. Talk to me. How's it going now? That's better. It's only coming through in one ear, though. Count to ten. One, two, yeah, that's... three, oh. four. Five, six, seven, eight, nine. No worries. I chose the Pele documentary for us because we have a shared love of football and we have a unique Pele experience in the family and perhaps we can share that story at the end. Yeah. Well, you you have a unique Pele experience. (laughs) You almost met him, but um, we didn't. But your interpretation of me going to meet him might be different. Your memory of it might be different. So we'll see how they line up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think it's a great film to choose. And I, I'm assuming that if anybody listens to this, they've got access to Netflix. I, I don't know if you noticed, but there's also a feature film called Pele. Birth of a Legend on Netflix. Oh, really? I didn't notice that. Yeah. So I took the opportunity to watch that as well. Oh, you watched that too? Yeah, yeah. It was an interesting comparison, but we we can come to that later on. It's good to clarify to the audience that it's it's on Netflix if people are keen to watch it after this. And also... It's got I noticed it's got two directors, Ben Nicholas and David Trihorn. Yeah. Well I don't I don't know them at all, but it was executive produced by Kevin MacDonald, who is British and he directed Touching the Void, the film about the mountain climbers. Ah. Um facing a crisis. And he also directed Marley. Oh, yeah, a couple of years ago he made Marley, and he's the executive producer. The guys who directed it, I, I, I don't know much about. I guess stylistically, as a doco, it was predominantly just amazing archival footage, really. Yeah, yeah, well, it is amazing archival footage. And, of course, it brought back lots of memories for me. Um, not so much in the 50s, but certainly the 60s and the 1966 World Cup, which was the only competition England's ever won, of course. Um, but it was just, you know, the commentator, Kenneth Wollstenholm, 
he was like the voice of football in my house when I was a kid. And he he had has quite a I don't know if he was upper class, but he had quite a kind of la-di-da accent, which, you know, was very, um, very particular voice that, that I remember. And, of course, seeing um, Bobby Charlton briefly, um, we didn't get a glimpse of uh, who was your German man, Beckenbauer. We, I don't think we saw Beckenbauer in, in Palais, but we see a glimpse of Bobby Charlton. The other player was Eusebio, who, see, I never saw Pele play in the flesh. And, in fact, I never saw Bobby Charlton, who, as you know, was my childhood hero. I never saw him play for Manchester United. I only saw him play after he left and was player-coach of Preston North End. But I did see Eusebio play, I think, in Newcastle against Newcastle United, and it must have been a European competition. And he was brilliant. He was brilliant. And in the um, the World Cup that they got bumped out of in 66, the England World Cup, Eusebio scored two goals for Portugal against Brazil. I re- yeah, I took note when I saw Eusebio, but I'd, I'd forgotten that you'd seen him in real life. Yeah. I mean, there were only two famous black players Really, Eusebio was one of them and Pele was the other. The, the first one, Pele, was in the 50, 58? No. Yeah. 58. Well, yeah. And then and then 66, they were onto him and he basically got chopped out of the World Cup. Yeah. He just yeah. got man-marked. They changed all the men. It was just a complete fight for him and he just... It, that is, that's when he got injured as well. Well, he, he got injured twice in the um, six, sixty. They won the they won the fifty eight World Cup against Sweden, and then the sixty two World Cup in Chile. He got injured in the first game and he wasn't able to play again. Uh, it was the sixty two he got injured, and then sixty six he got chopped out of the competition. Yeah, and in the end he did limp off, you know, and didn't come back, kind of thing. But he he played most of the group games. He was taken out, as they say, which was very sad. And and he describes that in the doco as the saddest moment of his life, being drummed out of the English. I think he, you know, he saw England as the home of, or I don't know if he saw England as the home of soccer, but he had a special interest in winning the World Cup in England. And when it didn't come to fruition, that was when he decided to retire from the World Cup. And he intended not to play again. But as the doco kind of shows, he was pressured into coming back for the 1970 World Cup in Mexico. And, of course, they won it. So he became the only player to win three World Cups and the youngest player to win a World Cup at the age of 17. Yeah. Against Sweden. Quite amazing. I guess it poses like the question what made him so great. I didn't realise his his father was a footballer and had instilled in him pretty young the foot the whole football work ethic thing. But he had to me he had just a coolness about him. He was so level headed for such a young guy. Well, yeah, it certainly appears that way. It's interesting because Pele, Birth of a Legend, the feature film, which is you know acted. Um, is basically about the relationship between him and his father. 
and it only goes up to when they won the World Cup in Sweden. Once the legend is born, that's that's the end of the film. The the contrast between the two is interesting. What you say about him being very calm. In Pele the Doco, he comes over and he comes over in the media as very confident and self-assured. But Doco, uh, Pele, the birth of a legend, he's full of self-doubt as a young man. It's just it's just a film about how his anxiety and self-doubt is overcome, really, through his relationship with his father, who continues to kind of inspire him. So there's two quite different pictures there, and I don't know which... I mean, who knows? Pele actually is an executive producer of the feature Birth of a Legend, and he has a little cameo appearance, not as a footballer, because it's about him as when he was 17. He appears in this hotel scene as a resident of the hotel. Is the feature pre the doco or after the doco? Think, oh, it's pre because the doco is this year. Yeah, the doco is very recent. Yeah. The feature, I think, is about 2015, 2016. Uh, okay. I mean, do you, do you really feel that you got to know Pele better? As I say, I really enjoyed it just from the, you know, whole, uh, just a load of quality archival footage. But in terms of really getting to the core of him as a man, I mean, they opened it with him walking in with the walking frame. You know, that was a strong image in terms of like the once great, now frail. But I think that ref- when, you, when you learn about the fact that he remained pretty neutral politically, that was interesting too. He sort of, and, and, and there was a, a great shot there of Muhammad Ali watching him make a speech. And one of the guys was like, perhaps he could have been more like Muhammad Ali. But on top of that, people say he did more for Brazil than any politician. So well, the fact- that's what. That's what he says too. Yeah, so true. So the fact that there was a dictatorship and he was not really ruffling any feathers, or I mean, fair enough, he he, he didn't feel it was his position or whatever. But um, you know, that that was some credit. That was a criticism some people had that he could have really stood his ground in particular areas. But the fact that he sort of sat above the politicians was really interesting. He did more than not ruffle figures. He actually met the president. They embraced the president, regarded him as a friend, etc. And at no point did Pelé ever kind of resist that relationship. And in fact, the the implication is that it was the dictatorship that persuaded him to come back in 1970 and go to the 1970 World Cup and basically put pressure on him. When they show, when they talk about Muhammad Ali, there's a guy, I think he's a journalist, and he makes an interesting comment, which is, yeah, but Muhammad Ali knew he could not go to Vietnam War and he might even go to jail, but he wouldn't be tortured. He wouldn't be disappeared like was happening in Brazil. Whereas Pele ran the risk of being not just, you know, being getting on the wrong side of the regime and ending up one of the disappeared or being tortured. And it it made me think about, you know, the one time I got arrested for protesting in Australia 
and um, got thrown in the back of the police van. And I remember thinking at the time, this is fine, you know, I might get slung in a cell for a couple of hours, but then they'll let me out. Whereas if I was in South America, Danny might never see me again. So I think the I think the uh, the risk for Pele was much kind of greater than it was for Muhammad Ali, but nevertheless, there are ways and means, and um, Pele was quite clearly on a path of just being blind to what was happening and playing his football. You know that that's what he. I don't think he ever really. He doesn't really deal with that question in the film very satisfactorily. You know, in the docker we hear that he got married and he confesses to having affairs because girls loved him. When you look up his biography, I mean, he's been married three times. He's got seven kids. He's refused to acknowledge um, one daughter who was born out of a marriage, but he's recognised another one, you know. I just wondered, in a way, they kind of plant these issues in the doco but never really deal with them. This is a man who's clearly great, like, just on the face of of being a footballer. He's he's the greatest of all time. I would have been so interested to see the flaws in all their glory because I think, you know, that's what what people can relate to. So this is this is a great man who's done great things, but what what are the flaws and, and what are the things that suffered? Who who knows the politics behind it or, you know, whether he, he just didn't want to go there. Well, it's it's clearly a film born out of adoration, really. And I read an article with the two guys who directed it, and they said, you know, the problem for them was that for over for 40 years or 50 years, Pelé has kind of, you know, he became famous because television was taking off at the same time as his career was taking off. And he's learned to deal with the media and he's got these kind of stock, he's got the stock smile and the stock responses. And they said our our problem was to try and make a film where we broke that down. So they were aware of it and they do kind of put the questions to him. They put the question to him about his behaviour in the regime under the under the dictatorship. But I don't think he ever meets those questions questions head on he did acknowledge that it was tough with all the attention he was getting and traveling he acknowledged that in terms of the marriage and i mean it it is a football doco you know unlike senna you know the film about ayrton senna which i think is a film that appeals to anybody whether they're interested in formula one racing or not It, it appeals to them because it's really a film about a young guy who's who thinks he's immortal, you know, he thinks he can't be killed. And, of course, at the age of 34, he is killed. So there's that whole aspect of the story, whether you like, whether you're interested in Formula One racing or not, that's a kind of interesting subject. With Pele, the doco, I think unless you're interested in soccer, you're probably not interested in the film, really. I mean, Pele is is so mythologised now 
And if you go to his website, like, you know, it's just ads for T-shirts and everything. Yeah. <laughs> he's done a lot of – he, he was the first millionaire soccer player. He's done a lot of commercial deals. He's been investigated for corruption. You know, there's a whole kind of business side. But he also runs a charity, big foundation that um, for kids, I think, for kids in poverty. So he's got all this stuff going on. But that's not the football story. And to tell the football story, it does take a fair bit of time, really. It's interesting you mentioned the Senate one because I remember being profoundly moved by that. And I have, I've actually become a bit of a Formula One fan as a, not, as a result of Senna and also as a result of this series they have on Netflix about the Formula One. They follow the Formula One seasons. Oh, yeah. And but again, I was. It's not the Formula One. The reason I love the series is because it gets into the head of these drivers. It shows the extraordinary pressure they're on behind the scenes, and it shows the crazy stuff that goes with on in the teams. This is in the series, but what I what I remember from Senna, it's exactly what you said. He thought he was immortal, and his his um, religious faith gave him this through line. And he said when he was driving, it was almost like a kind of Zen thing where he really felt invincible, and, but that was connected yeah. to his faith. And it was his faith played such a huge part in making him great. Yeah, it was the, the irony of his death was mind-boggling and also the footage on the day of, of that race when he, when he died, there's, there's a really... He's different on that day, and he, I think he's speaking to a to a, even speaking to a a team or a doctor. And he said, "I can't remember the comment, but he hints he's he's a little shaky." And and it, and they captured all that on the day of 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 his death. So um, I, I remember being profoundly moved by Senna in a much different way to Pele. Pele was, as you say, it was a football homage homage to him. But I like getting into the under the skin of the of the guy. Yeah. And I think the filmmakers probably had a go at that, but I don't think they kind of succeeded or were likely to succeed really because Pele is too much the myth, you know, and he's been the myth for so long. They interesting they never mentioned him, you know, he used to advertise Vi- Viagra. <laughs> I'd like to know the story behind that. Is that in recent times or in the the 60s? Not that long ago, maybe 10 years ago. Because Viagra hasn't been around. (laughs) Maybe 10, 15 years ago. What, to backtrack a little bit, it was interesting when you mentioned being arrested. This is off off track a little bit because for the listeners, both Pop and I have been arrested and mine was nowhere near as worth getting arrested (laughs) <laughs> it was interesting you mentioned you being being uh arrested i i remember that and but what i remember about that is i didn't see it as a bad thing i i understood the cause and what you were trying to do and ultimately what you were trying to do was protect the health and safety of your community and family so when you sat in this hole to stop them putting this power line in I was a little confused. I realised the stand you were taking, 
it was inspiring as a son. So that's my memory of you being arrested. But me getting arrested in Germany was far less. You got to get arrested once in your life, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe not. But mine in Germany, I basically backed into a car here and was accused of fleeing when I went inside to get a piece of paper to leave a note on the windshield. And uh, I had to go down the station and they started reading me my rights. And in the end, the charges were dropped, but that wasn't for any, any great cause. That was for no, that wasn't taking a stand on anything. That was a mishap with a, with a car. How old were you when I got arrested? You were a- I was in, I think I was in grade two and I got a message at school. I was sitting in school and a message came over the PA and said that both Helen and I, Sister Helen, had to go to the principal's office over the over the PA of the whole school. <laughs> <laughs> Where the news was broken to you that your dad was in jail. <laughs> so we went up to the front window and I can't remember it clearly, but Someone in the office was like, um, we just need to let you both know that your father's at the police station and he could possibly be there overnight. It's nothing to worry about. And we were like, oh, because we left you in the morning at the protest site. Yeah. And we went off to school and then obviously things ramped up. So at that stage we didn't know what was going on. And then next thing you know, you are on the evening news getting, getting <laughs> carried away. <laughs> Like coppers. <laughs> yeah. But for anyone who is listening, you know, we were exonerated. The uh, power lines didn't go ahead and the case was thrown out of court. And this is the amazing thing. This is the amazing thing that the power lines went underground. They could have been underground. They were going to, they were suggesting putting them along Merry Creek, which is a, a really important nature part of, Northcote in Melbourne and, and the power lines could have always been under underground. There was concerns about radiation and things coming off them. And this protest actually helped put a stop to that. I did. It was after those arrests that the state premiers, you know, halted the project and then ultimately, you know, they changed it. But, you know, we were in a democracy. We weren't in a dictatorship. And that, that, that's the difference, I guess. It's interesting because um, the Pele Docker reminded me of another incident involving you and I because, you know, there's, there's those three great goals that Pele scored. One is a towering header at the far post. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, another is one where he, he kind of dummies the goalkeeper the goalkeeper's coming straight for him and he just lets the ball run past him. He then runs around the keeper, gets the ball, puts it in the back of the net. I remember that one, yeah. That one. And the third one is one where he he does a little volley over the head of the defender. Not, not a volley, a little dink over the head of the defender and volleys the ball, runs around the defender. Gaza. It. it was a Gaza. Gaza. Exactly. Gaza, 1996. Euro 96. It was like a carbon copy. Well, that's uncanny because it's Euro 96. Not only did we witness Gaza's goal in, in, we were, we were up in the high section of Wembley stadium at Euro 96 
dad and I to see England versus Scotland. And that was a dream for me come true to go to an England game, having grown up in Australia and sort of at school being teased for being a POM, even though I'd grown up in Australia. And with a lot of my uh, Greek friends and, and multicultural mix of friends at school, I was cast as the English guy. So whenever England was in a tor- tournament, I felt the heat at high school. So then when we got to go to England versus Scotland at Wembley, when we went back to the UK on a family trip that was just, I was 16 at the time, 96. And uh, to hear the crowd on that level, I'd never never heard anything like it. And I was, I was swept away by the, the sheer noise in the stadium. But then when Gaza kicked that goal, <laughs> when Gaza kicked that goal, it was actually like time stood still. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we've always said it's lucky one of us didn't nip off to the bathroom or to get food or something at that point because he did exactly what he flicked it over the guy's head, volleyed it in, and he actually ran up and celebrated to the side that we were on and had the water bottles. And it was a historic moment to this day in football particularly english football history and you and i got to witness it yeah and so we beat the scots 2-0 and afterwards we're coming out of the grand you remember great a bunch of huge scots guys in kilts came towards us and you were wetting yourself because you thought oh my god you know they're gonna kill us and this guy said to you well done, laddie. Well yeah. done. <laughs> Didn't he? Something like that. He did, and he grabbed me. He like grabbed my shoulder, and he actually tied a little tartan uh, wristband around my wrist. But I remember being absolute friggin' petrified. I was like, I'd seen all these European football riots ever since I'd grown up, and I thought, oh, here we go. The Scots are going to, because I had the England shirt on. That's I thought right. they're going to come up and it costed me. But he put a little tartan. Band and then the other the other thing about that amazing day is we waited for the England bus. That's and right. The England bus came and the players were on it and I remember um, we got Gary Neville's autograph and stuff. But uh, I had I had another moment on that bus where I went around the back. I don't I can't I don't know if you remember this, but David Seaman, the goalkeeper, had saved a penalty in that match. Yeah, he did. As well. So not only was there Gaz's goal, but Seaman ripped a a penalty save. And I went round the back of the bus because all the fans were at the front and Seaman was sat by himself on the the other side. And I looked up at him at the window and I don't know what I was doing. I was basically giving him the thumbs up. And then I did a sort of strange reenactment of his save. (laughs) (laughs) Did you? I did. Did he, re- did he recognize it? He did. And the thing is, it was this uh it was this exchange with him without dialogue because he was up behind the window on the bus. Yeah. And I sort of just poised myself like a goalkeeper and just shuffled to the right and then like gave him the thumbs up, but he knew what I he knew what I was doing. I was reenacting his save without throwing myself across the concrete and he had he just had this chuffed grin like he just had this genuinely chuffed and he gave me the the thumbs up and it was just you could just tell he was proper chuffed about it but that day now that I think back to it 
Gaza's goal, the save, the bus, the, the Scotsman, it was, it was an epic day. It was That's epic. True. But do you remember how it ended? Well, not ended, but do you remember the other thing? Well, I was too young to be drunk. so <laughs> No, it wasn't that. You handed your notebook or whatever and a pen through the bus window for Gary Neville to sign it. He gave you the book back and he kept the pen. <laughs> you remember that? He could have it. He took the pen. You, you never got your pen back. We can no. ask him if he still got it. That's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. Well, so I suppose we might as well own up to the fact that that was the same trip on which you decided to go off and meet uh, Mr. Um, Pele. Mr. Pele. So to bring it full circle, that yeah. So on that same trip, I can't remember if it was before the England Scotland game or after, but we were in. You Bath. better try and try and do this fairly briefly. <laughs> it, can, it can be a long story. Don't worry, Dad. My my memory's not as sharp as it used to be. I'll try and keep keep it to the important facts, not not what the weather was, the temperature, the yeah. yeah. No, so we were in Bath as a family, where uh, dear Grandma was and i saw i saw in the paper or something that pele was as part of the euro 96 tournament he was going to do a an in-person appearance at harrods the famous department store in london and we were going from bath onto birmingham where our other family were so at 16 i decided that i was going to take it upon myself to travel down to london and try and meet Pelé and get his autograph at Harrods. And I remember there was some nervous, there was some anxiety around the decision, should I trek off to London by myself and how on earth was I going to get to Birmingham after that? And I think Grandma was a bit sceptical about it, perhaps. You were very supportive. For me, it was actually my adventure, my first adventure into manhood on the hero's journey. It was like venturing away from the nest into the big megatropolis that is London to try and meet Pele. So why, why did you want to meet Pele? <laughs> because I had a sense of this greatness and I had a sense that that wouldn't, that opportunity may not present in Australia or I just sensed that it was a very unique thing that perhaps it was a once in a lifetime opportunity so I can't I think I took the train down there I can't remember if it was a bus or train but I got there in good time and he was set to they they opened Harrods at 10 a.m and I got there really early because I thought if I can get in early it's a sure thing but when I got there there was already a massive queue all through the department story so I took my place at the back of the queue the whole point is that was 10 a.m at one o'clock Say one o'clock was when the bus was leaving to Birmingham and the bus station was relatively near where Harrods was, but I hadn't quite located it. Anyway, by the time it got to 12, the, the queue was still massive and I had made a, I'd made ground, but I was still far from the front and time started to ramp up. By the time it got to... 10 to 1 with the bus due to leave at 1 I was three people from the front and he, there was Pele sitting there meeting everyone and I literally had 
10 minutes and a security guard came out and said, we're out of time, Pele's got to go. And the blokes in front of me fired up. They were about to turn Harrods. They were about to rip the living crap out of Harrods and start demolishing the place. So the security, security said, couple more people and he's got to go. And so I was unsure whether I was going to get to meet him. And then I looked and I literally had 10 minutes to get the, the bus. So at that point, the, the two options I had was stay, meet Pele and miss the bus or give up the chance to meet Pele and get the bus. That was what I, that was the pressure I was under with one bloke actually in front of me now and Pele's still there at security saying he's going to go. So I thought this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I'm not going to give up the opportunity to meet Pele. So the guy in front of me went and when he finished with Pele, security came, the clock passed one o'clock, security came, said it's all over, we're taking Pele away. Pele waved and got taken away by security when I was the next one in line to meet him. So you missed the bus and you never got Pele's autograph. So they they ran over and they gave me a postcard, a photo of him that was signed, personally signed. Okay. But it wasn't the same. So ultimately, to wrap up the story, I went into far too much detail, but to wrap it up, in choosing to meet Pele, I lost both Pele and the bus. And the reason, to bring it home, the reason he took so long, the reason he went over time was because he was so generous with everybody he met. He took far too long. This is what security said. They said he took far too long with every person. They said he's just taken 10 minutes with every person that he meets. And it was Pele's generosity of his time and wanting to chat to everybody that actually that actually meant I didn't get to to meet him. Yeah. So it sums yeah. up his character in a way. Well, he says that in the doco, doesn't he, that, you know, irrespective of who it might be, if anybody ever, including the dictator of Brazil, if anybody's ever wanted to meet me, I've done my best, you know, to be available to them. And I guess he has, from that point of view, he's been an incredible ambassador. I think the Pelé experience was enough. But what a trip. Yeah. What a roller coaster that trip was. And I think to sum up, you know, as you say, there's some fantastic archive. And his individual talent was just amazing. And it's worth kind of watching the docker to kind of imbibe that. Interestingly, with the um, the feature, The Birth of a Legend, his fa- the way his father trained him was by juggling mangoes. And you used the green mango for shooting, but for juggling, you used a ripe mango. And if, if you weren't completely sensitive and balance the thing delicately on your foot or your head, it would smash and turn to pulp. That's classic. So there's this amazing scene where Pele Jr. is trying to master the art of juggling a mango without all the juice kind of coming out and his father teaching him. It's a great kind of image, really. So, yeah, all in all, a film to watch, but not necessarily a film to discover something new about Pele, probably. 
just to finish off though the thing that i really have trouble with with these kinds of docos is the use of voice because Pele is speaking in spanish and they've voiced him rather than use subtitles not true and i i i hate that in docos i think it's done because the feeling is if you want a film to be popular you know people won't tolerate subtitles so they they don't only voice him they voice all the other old players that they interview and the journalists and they're all given different voices and i have to admit the voice they've given pele is like it's a great voice but of course it's not pele's voice and you just i i would prefer to kind of watch him speak spanish and look at the expression on his face while i'm reading i think subtitles are a, a more a preferable way to do it because the actor is assuming the intonation and the emotion you know he's, he's acting it um and I, I, as i say they they picked a good voice but i didn't like that voice i tried to and that's the other thing that annoys me about netflix is you can't read the bloody credits because as soon as the credits start they shrink them into a small box at the top of the screen i don't know if this happens in germany and then they start running ads in the rest of the screen for all the other films they want you to watch and for me like credits are part of the film and you should be given the freedom to sit and watch the credits but no not on netflix credits you instilled in me very young to stay and watch the credits i remember we'd watch a film and i'd just want to boot when it was finished and you'd want to <laughs> take in the credits and now lo and behold every film i sit and take in the credits <laughs> yeah so you should often that's the only way you learn a bit about the film itself well absolutely and to see the, the way that it's made and to see the sheer amounts of people behind it especially on the mm. big blockbusters just to see the hundreds and hundreds of of names you 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 get you get an, a grasp of the scale of the production yeah and of course in pele the birth of a legend they all speak english so right <laughs> you know um with an american accent so do we we're right. not we're not like we don't give films like scores or anything do we give pele eight footballs out of 10 or something or we <laughs> Uh, I think I think a bit less than I personally. Yeah. You know. I no, think, I'd give it a six footballs out of 10. Yeah. I mean it, it certainly was an amazing kind of trip down the soccer world cup memory lane and it, and it makes you kind of realize what great players there were, you know, in the past. Mm, but you got me think, you got me thinking about the Senna one because the guy who made the Senna one also did the Amy Winehouse one. Yeah, well there's another one that And that's really, another one, so it's just yeah. yeah. Like whether you like Amy Winehouse or not, it, it's a riveting documentary. And that's what I always say to my students if they, you know, a film mustn't just appeal to a niche audience if it's going to 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 festivals or whatever it's got to have a universal appeal and I, and i think that was the, the film that you starred in of course as an under 16 the hillman of soccer fable 
Um, that you know, that I think it's true of that film that whether or not viewers like soccer, it's a film about being under being a young man under sixteen, and a film about multiculturalism and the kind of Australian model of multiculturalism. So it's got those in universal ingredients, whether or not you're kind of a soccer fan. It's about winning and losing too. Oh, it's and about that, many things. Yeah, yeah, but the winning and losing, particularly when you're a 16 year old boy, you don't want to lose, you know. Whereas Pele is, I, I suppose <clears throat> there are those moments, you know. There's the ups and downs of his injuries, but at the end of the day, he's he's the winner, really. Yeah, and that's the way the way that we see him. That's fine, but most of us don't don't win three World Cups. <laughs> that was the irony of the Hillman was maybe thought that we needed to win for it to be a successful story or for it to be a an engaging story. And when we started getting trounced heavily every game, I remember you guys as the crew being like, what the heck do we do with this? Like it's a, it's a, it's a catastrophe on the field. But it was, as you say, it was so much bigger than just <clears throat> the football it was the multiculturalism it was can a, can a group of young guys pubescent teenagers from different backgrounds get their shit together and, and mix as a team and 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 figure out a way and uh it just had moments where we did it had small moments where we actually did that but overall the season you know the season so there was so there was so many as you say universal things to it it was much much bigger than just a football Docker. Yeah, and and it was full of flawed characters, of course, like Stan, deeply the coach, <laughs> but but lovable, you know, you you loved them and they were flawed at the same time. But yeah, I, I remember halfway through the season, SBS checking up on us, and we we were saying, well, you know, they're second from bottom or whatever you were, and SBS saying, you've got to go and find another team. It's no good if they don't win, you know. The multicultural team has to win where you were being creamed every week by one week by the Macedonians, the next week by the Italians, you know. And we really had to argue with them and say multiculturalism is much more complicated than just, you know, let's all get together and have fun and we'll win. Losing, how you deal with loss and losing is much more important than how you deal with winning. Anybody can deal with winning. And that's why the take triumph and tragedy quote from Rijard, Rijard, Kipling. That's right. I still, I didn't, the amazing thing about that is I didn't fully understand it when I was in it, what that quote was about because I was young. And of course there was the time I missed the penalty and it ruined my birthday and, and uh, it was devastating even though we won the match. But um, uh, I now take that, I fully get that quote that, you know, successes, failures, triumphs, victories—they're one. They're one and the same. Well, the the, the attitude has to be take. What, what is it? Take triumph and disaster and treat them as the same imposter. Imposter. Yeah. yeah, like neither is what life's really about. Life is about triumph and disaster, but it's about that mixture. You're never going to have one without the other. Exactly. And there, there are glimmers of that with Pelé, and I remember he actually cries when he talks about 
um, his disappointment at being put out of the game in England in 66. You know, and it clearly was kind of the saddest, one of the saddest moments of his life. But you also wonder about all the the rest of his life outside of football and so on. Intermission. If you need to nip to the bathroom, restock the popcorn, or move seats because the bloke next to you is obnoxious, now's the time to do it. A quick word from our sponsor. Ah, we don't have one, but we're hoping to get one. Let's get into our second film in this double feature. Introduce the doco and why you chose this particular one. Well, I I chose it because I wondered what you would think of it, particularly as it's a kind of hybrid documentary with elements of drama, acting and so on in it. I chose it because Kirsten Johnson, she made a film, she's from America, New York, I think, she made a, she she has been a camera a camera person that's been her career and two or three years ago she made a film called Camera Person which is just a montage of outtakes from footage she's shot on a whole lot of films over the years but it's sort of interwoven with some family footage it's quite an interesting little film um and i with you know i looked at that and I'd shown it at the VCA to students. But then she was a virtual guest this year at the documentary conference, um, the Australian documentary conference, and she did a masterclass for our students, for our doco students via Zoom um, from New York. And she's got this new film out called Dick Johnson's Dead, which has just been nominated for... um, for an Oscar, actually, apparently. And so it's this, it's really a story about her and her father who has been diagnosed with dementia. And although it's called Dick Johnson is dead, Dick Johnson isn't dead. He's just in the process of mentally departing from the world. And Kirsten Johnson takes this particular approach to um, dealing with that fact. So what you just kind of saw it out of the blue. Did it completely flummox you or, you know, what did you think? It was confronting in that it's talking about death and I realised that that was confronting. There's a lot There's a lot of, I can say about it from the filmmaking side of things, a lot of interesting stuff, but I... I consider myself someone who realizes that death is part part of life, but this doco brought that to the fore, and I realized that I was actually a little uncomfortable with it. It's a hard, it's a tough, it's a tough topic. It was so unique in in the way it was done. I, I don't know how much spoilers to give as well for for people who might not. Yeah, have that was um, something I was going to ask you about these conversations. <laughs> I mean. In a way, you can't spoil Pele because you just got to look up Wikipedia and you get the history of the World Cup. Yeah. We can talk about it in the approach to the subject and to the film in general terms. There is a particular scene that I would like to talk about. Same. It's probably the same one. I mean, I guess we tell people that 
might be interested in this film, pause the podcast, go to Netflix, watch the film, and then come back for the discussion. Yeah, <laughs> if, if, yeah, or, or, or be prepared for some spoilers, perhaps. Yeah. He even asked her, why do you make docos? And she said, because real life's more fascinating than fiction. And I think this is something, as a storyteller, I'm tussling with as well. It's it's this truth versus fiction and the combination of the two and what's what's the most interesting way to tell stories. My personal preference is fiction combined with truth. You're very much in the transparent documentary approach i'm I'm from the kirsten johnson school of thinking which is that truth is stranger than fiction and that you know the, the thing about fiction is that it's bounded by the imagination of the scriptwriter, whereas reality is not bounded by anybody's imagination you know coincidences happen in real life which if you saw in a fiction film you'd go oh that would never happen They've written, you know, stupid scriptwriter, but of course, in, in real, if it happens in real life, it just happens. It, it um, is what it is, and and I think um, because to, to put it in one sentence for for our listeners, our beloved listeners, whoever they are, it, it's a film where she's confronted with the impending loss of her father through dementia. And she has spoken about this and said that, you know, I I can't tolerate the idea of my dad dying. I just can't tolerate it. So my response as a filmmaker is what can I do filmically to kind of not to put off his death but to make kind of make the most of it in a way. And so in the film she finds various dramatic ways of killing Dick using stunt people and doubles and all the rest of it. He has this series of accidents. But in the process, it's a celebration, a way of a way of her trying to deal with the fact that he is going to go, you know. And that, see, I've watched it twice, and the first time I watched it, I was quite uncomfortable, and I thought that this is really something between her and her dad. You know, if they want to do this, let them do it. But why... why Get, bring an audience in. But the second time I watched it, and perhaps it's because I've listened to Kirsten Johnson talk about the film since, the second time I watched it, I just found it really a very sensitive and moving film, which, yeah, you know, it's got it's got moments of comedy and celebration and, and kind of ridiculousness, but ticking away underneath is this mutual kind of agreement between father and daughter that this loss is already happening and it's already their eyes it's already happened previously with the with the deterioration of the the mother so in a way in a way that experience seems to have informed how she's going to attempt to deal with the next one yeah absolutely yeah, that experience of losing her mum to Alzheimer's and now her father diagnosed, I don't know if it's Alzheimer's or some other form of dementia. But, yeah, it's like she's got to go through it again. What can we do? What was interesting was his willingness to go along with it and at times not 
necessarily understanding what she was doing fully but embracing it. And they, she said that about him, that he was a very present guy and, and up for this stuff. And I, I just wondered, was there any moment where she took it too far? I could see when he when he was on the street in New York and he he got hit with the <laughs> the guy passing with a beam or something. He, he, he was obviously standing out in the cold and it took, took a number of hours. And that, that was the only time he hinted that perhaps she'd taken a little bit too far at that point. But she was very sensitive to that because she was always, are you okay? Are you cool with this? And he was always pretty cool and up for it. Yeah. I think we can only take her word for it because... There is a question, you know, there are questions about consent if people are mentally impaired or even physically impaired. Are they in a position to fully consent to being involved in a film in this way? But having listened to Kirsten and, you know, realised what a sensitive and ethical human being she is, I'm sure that he was happy to kind of go along with it. From her experience, she obviously had a, a good gauge of where the line was. When it's direct family, that's a whole nother, whole nother layer. So it was a very bold thing to do, and also artistically, just very unique with the intertwining of these uh, fictional, you know, him flying and dancing and stuff. That was pretty cool. Yeah, and the, the heaven, the heaven scene with the dancing, and he's playing the clarinet. All those, she talks about how you know the the film. It went from sometimes like just him and her and a mobile phone camera to a crew and cast of like fifty people on set doing the the heaven scene, and how she wanted to use all the tools of filmmaking that she could think of that would give you a sense of, the, as you said, you know, the unexpected and having to deal with the unexpected because death can strike at any moment. It's interesting you say it from a technical perspective, it got me thinking because from my experience with fictional stuff and, and movie type sets, there's so much onus on not getting the, the boom in shot, pulling focus, technically in in narrative or feature stuff it's all about keeping the filmmaking aspect away to print you know yeah. to bring truth to the story i watch a doco like this and there's shots out of focus there's shots on the ground there's boom shots the crew's in shot and it doesn't matter it just doesn't matter and and i'm almost like well that's actually quite freeing in a in a way but it's also part of the story because the film is self aware that it's a film. And so it's almost like a behind-the-scenes film about the making of the film, but it is actually the film. Yeah, with you know aspects, I mean? aspects yeah. of imaginative fictional stuff within it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is brilliant. So you, you kind of see how they've set something up and then you see what they've shot, you know, and it's just it, it just moves backwards and forwards between seeing her kind of directing scenes and then seeing her behind or experiencing her behind the camera 
and then talking to her dad from behind the camera and then she'll come out from behind the camera and give him a hug because that's what you would do, you know, if it's your dad. So, yeah, it's really interesting from that point of view and very well kind of edited. I think that self-awareness is fine as long as it doesn't interrupt, as you say, interrupt the story. But when it's part of the story, it's the balancing in the edit, I think. In Hope, which is another doco of Dad's, where Amal became the filmmaker. Yes, indeed. Yeah, when she went back to Iran and we, when we were separating in Indonesia, I kind of filmed on her behalf and she went to Iran and filmed on my behalf or got her son to film on my behalf. So, yeah, there was that. There is that kind of connection too. I suppose I, I don't have the um, I don't have the skills that um, because Kirsten Johnson's worked on a lot of dramas as well as documentaries. You know, she's got those craft skills to do all those stunt scenes and everything that you see in Dick Johnson is Dead. I don't have that kind of narrative drama background. It's not so much that if the boom if the boom's in shot. But it's relative to the to the storytelling. This transparency thing is is quite freeing, I think. Yeah. Well, I think you see, Kirsten Johnson started this with her previous film, Camera Person, which I said is like the outtakes of footage she's shot for other people's films over a period of twenty years, and often the shots that she's included in Camera Person, often you hear her talking to the director. Or she's shooting a scene and she sneezes and the camera kind of jerks up in the air when she sneezes. And so in camera person, she's kept all that kind of reflexive self-awareness of the fact that this is a film. She's kept it in. And I think that that experience then, you know, has led her to think, well, let's play with, let's actually play with this more deliberately rather than just pitching out shots from the editing. She's committed to it. She's committed to that style of it. And that's the main thing. It's like, there's no right or wrong. It's about committing, committing to it. Yeah. Like, well, I've, I've chosen and I'm confident about that being in there because it, it, it serves the story first and foremost. So, um, yeah. She also talked to to us about, you know, she got the film funded with the idea of, well, this is this is my father's final days. I'm going to take him around the world. And then when she started working with her dad, who's in his 80s, she realised he's not up to it. We're not going anywhere, you know. And so she had all this money to spend. So then she starts getting crews of 50 people and, Paying them all and doing those things. I wondered about scenes. that. Yeah, I won't because this this set building and like the haunted house. Or I was like, this is a yeah. major set building, and I was like, yeah, yeah, that made so that was her intention was to take him around the world. It wasn't like a strategic yeah. thing. She actually no, no, that that was her intention. She got it budgeted as a kind of round the world film, and then <laughs> realized we ain't we ain't doing that. He's not up to yeah. it, and so. At, that was another question was how can we spend this money and have a bit of fun during this period when my dad's in this, you know, transitional 
period. When we talked about, I mentioned a scene I want to talk about, and you said it might be the same one. Which one have you got in mind? The funeral scene. Yeah. 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 Um, That was what moved me the most, and that's obviously in the later part of the film. So, spoiler alert. I've I've often thought, you know, you know, it's a, it's this thing about what would it be like. I'm sure a lot of people have had the, maybe it's a morbid thought, but what would it be like to be at your own funeral, <laughs> and, you know, how would you be commemorated? But you're so in it because it's so well performed by the guy given the eulogy. You're so in it that you that you're there and you still don't know. And then when when uh, Dick Johnson appears, that that moved me the most. Um, yeah. And it really back to this being confronted by death. I really believe that you know death is part of life and it's something that we should. And I've you know we've obviously had our own experiences with loss. Um, but I'm all for trying to embrace death as part of life and something that can be talked about. That last scene was the most powerful for me. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I mean, it it is a spoiler, but it's essential to kind of tell people, you know, either turn off or if you listen, it's going to be spoiled, is that they have his funeral, in inverted commas, while he's still alive, and what happened there was she she had always wanted to do this. And, in fact, it was the first scene they shot where it's the last scene in the film. They were a Seventh-day Adventist family living in some other town in America. He gets dementia, so he has to... She takes him to New York to live with her. And, bef- and they're Seventh-day Adventists. So before they leave town... She gets together all his friends and church, all the church people and, you know, everyone that knew Dick, and they put him in this coffin in a church and they have this mock funeral scene. And then the rest of the film is shot after that. But, of course, it's a really, it's an amazing culmination for the film so it's placed at the end. It's kind of like, you know, I'm closer to death than a lot of people, I suppose, chronologically. You know, why why have I got to be dead before anybody says something, you know, nice about me or even what they really think about me or don't think about me? If we just could get the timing right to celebrate people's lives so that they can be there and hear it, and then go off and die kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That, uh, that would be ideal. And she's done it. You know, she's done it. I was just so happy when he appeared. Yeah. But it's, it's exactly what you say. It's like dealing with the unexpected and, and time being the most precious commodity we have and why can't we celebrate like that when people are alive and the quality of time with others that you perhaps appreciate more after they're gone or what, what you know, how you could have had. It all, it all hits home once once they're gone. See, I'm starting to talk about death and it's quite uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, that that was the other thing I was going to say. Is if you watch Camera Person, it becomes quite clear that she has spent twenty years shooting around the world in trouble spots and in wars. Like she's made several films in Bosnia, you know, in villages where there have been massacres and all of this kind of thing. And there's some amazingly moving scenes in Camera Person which are related to death. And it's like this is where she's working it out in her relation. And when she actually said um, when she was talking to us, you know, I was aware at the time that I had all this money to make a film and there are much more kind of immediate things that I should be making films about, Think, you know, political issues and things that are going on in the world. But she said, for me, this moment with my father was just all-consuming. You know, that was all I could make a film about. That's what she does. Family history and everything is really confronting in a way. In your, in your, in our world, you know, family is perhaps more confronting than going into a subject matter that you're more of a researcher or you're sort of a fly on the wall or yeah. what is that direct? Yeah. So because her... you're, you're involved. And going back to the funeral thing, you know, that was something. Grandma said to me early on when she first was went into the nursing home and I went to see her, she said, look, don't come to my funeral because I won't know anything about it. Come and see me while I'm alive. And I decided then that every year, at least once a year, I would go from Australia to England and make sure that I saw her until the day she died, you know, which I did. For me, living living over here, it's given me much more of a grasp of the quality of time, particularly when I'm at home, because if I do the math on it, it's pretty friggin' scary at times in terms of loved ones and friends and how often I'm going to get home. If I get home once a year, it's great in a way because I know that that time I have on at home, if it's for a month in a year, I know it's going to be from my part anyway, really focused on the quality of time because living over here, I know that time is scarce and precious. With Dick Johnson, although his his uh, his mental state was deteriorating, he was still very sharp. And that was the same with my you know, with grandma, I mean, when I when I went and saw her for the last time <laughs> it was classic because she had what, two or three sherries a day for forty years. She <laughs> You know, she raised a family on her own at one point, ran a business, worked in a restaurant for years and years, a very hard, hardened woman, and, and she'd had sherry every day. And when I went to the home, she, that was the first thing she was, just, can you get us sherry? You know, And I couldn't, being in the home for safety and all that. But I'm like, if she's had a sherry every day and that's what she's enjoyed for the past 40 years, let her sit on the balcony, let her sit on the terrace and have a, Sherry, but obviously there's safety and practicalities in a nursing home. I think once once you're into the institution, you know, your days are numbered. And, and probably Kirsten Johnson was aware of that and wanting to make the most of the time she had with her dad. And it, in, in that sense, it's a playful film. And he's quite a playful kind of guy, really. And I think Grandma was too. She yeah. had that 
element of playfulness about it. Brought a lot of playfulness to a very uncomfortable topic. Yeah, yeah. Which is really cool. So, like, it it deserves, it absolutely deserves all the accolades and... Interesting. You should have a look at camera person if you can. I saw it on her IMDb, so I'll try and... uh, Yeah. Yeah. There's a montage in there just of still shots of sites where there have been atrocities in Bosnia and things. So you'll see like a shot of a swimming pool and then the text comes up, you know, site where 50 people were massacred by Serbs or something like that, you know, and then you'd see a basketball court, you know, that's where people were imprisoned and just this kind of series of shots of ordinary places where these terrible things happen. And then there's another montage of just follow shots where she's obviously been told, follow that person. She's just put together a montage of shots where she's following people with the camera in different parts of the world. and It's amazing. And there's this amazingly brave scene where this She's filming a boxing match and she's obviously following one of the fighters and he gets beaten and he thinks it's unfair and he just storms around the dressing room, smashing things up. And she just sticks with him with the camera. And you think he's going to turn and smash her next, you know? Like there's a woman, just her and him in the dressing room and he's going berserk. And she just keeps filming. That's commitment again. And um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if he's out of. <laughs> if it was, do you remember Peter Zakharov being chased around the ambulance <laughs> by a guy with toothache? When I was making the um, errands of mercy, we were following, following Ambos, and we went to this place where this guy had such a bad toothache that when he saw Peter Zakharov with a camera, he started chasing him, and Peter just <laughs> ran for it, and they were chased. He was chased. Did he keep filming? No, no, no. <laughs> Zakharov, Zakharov was gone, mate, like a shot. But, you know, Kirsten Johnson, a woman, vulnerable, and I think she just gambled that he he would leave the camera alone, you know. She just kept shooting. She's an interesting filmmaker, very yeah. interesting filmmaker. I mean, it's probably not... A film a, about loss. Yeah, film about loss. And um, and sad, but also about celebrating life. It's probably weird. It's probably not really appropriate to, combine, to compare Pelé and Dick Johnson because they're so... They're so different, but um, I was very moved by Dick Johnson, and I wish that's what I'm sort of seeking as a as a viewer, I guess. So I'm a football fan, so that and, and we have here like we have history with Pele and stuff, so that made that easy to watch. You know, I find Pele a moving film for different reasons, like for nostalgic, personal reasons but less, you know, it was less about Pelé and more about my football kind of heritage and history and England winning the World Cup and then losing it, you know, in 1970, being beaten by Brazil. And that Gordon Banks save, which is in there from Pelé, he makes a save from Pelé, which is, like, unreal. Yeah, phenomenal save. 
Yeah, but England still lost one nil. They've been losing ever since. <laughs> but we're all we're all coming from a different perspective and lens when we watch this stuff. So for Pele, you were you know you had that history. I had the history with him personally, and then from from yeah. Johnson personal experiences with with loss. But yeah, the transparency and the boldness of the filmmaking and the trying to find some sort of comfort within the discomfort is really appealing yeah. to me as a storyteller because that's where the that's where the real grit starting there've been there've been a few docos lately about dementia i guess it's you know it's so common now there's more films about it but there's a film by Alan Berliner who's an american filmmaker called um First cousin once removed. It's about a first cousin of his who's always been a mentor to him and who is diagnosed with dementia. And he makes, in a way, a much more conventional film where he tries to kind of re-establish contact with this guy who's clearly, you know, losing his marbles. It's a very, it's another very sensitive film. If anyone's interested in films about dementia, there's another I one I heard recommend of. That one. Yeah, there's another one I heard of. Viggo Mortensen directed it. He's the actor who was in Lord of the Rings, and yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know the name. I can't remember the name, but I heard him being interviewed, and he said a very interesting thing about dementia because he had had a personal experience with it, and he said if 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 the person is telling a story that is very, you know, it's something that's far removed from reality or a memory that's completely kind of warped. He's like the best thing you can do is go with it. So because if you don't go with whatever they're spinning or because they believe it's so real um, yeah. uh, that yeah. he, he was saying actually you just – if you go with it, that's not going to cause the confusion and disorientation, whereas a lot of people's approach is to correct them. So yeah. if they say, oh, yeah. so-and-so, so-and-so has been dead for five years and so-and-so is still alive, it's more like, oh, yeah. yeah, that's right sort of thing, which is counterintuitive. But it's a terrible thing. In, um, Dick Johnson, that scene with her mum where she shows her a photo of her dad and the mother says, yeah, I was married to that man once. I think Kirsten Johnson says, what, what was his name? And she can't remember. And Kirsten says, I knew, I, I know him too, you know. And the mother says, do you? You know, like it's her dad. Yeah. And her mum doesn't recognise her any longer as her daughter. I mean, yeah, that must be horrendous to, uh, yeah. to deal with. Dreadful to deal with. Yeah. So yeah. let's let's hope dementia doesn't touch our lives. Mm-hmm. All right. Cool. Well, there we go. So I, I there's no <laughs> there's no rating scale on that. I just it was very I really enjoyed the that um yeah. both, really enjoyed both of them in different ways. Yeah. I think if you're gonna if you're gonna rate, you know, the two, one would have one would one would rate Dick Johnson is Dead, you know, as a better film than Pele, but it does rather depend on your own interests and what you want to watch a film about, really. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, you 
you wouldn't deter people from watching Dick Johnson because it's about death. It, it's such a kind of positive and playful film in a way that people should watch it. No, and that's what that's what I'm saying. Embrace, embrace that discomfort. Like, really, death is a part of life. That's yes, yeah. It's the more we accept that, the more we can can live it without sounding too philosophical or whatever it's really about accepting that that's actually the only only guarantee yep which becomes a bit more apparent to me as the years go on my boy (laughs) well me too i'm on the back nine now (laughs) i think well you're only yeah well six years younger than your grandfather when he died I don't know, 40 shouldn't be like a, a line, but 40, I think by 40 you really have a grasp of time. You know how long a block of 10 years is. Yeah. You know, in your 30s, your 30s, still, your 20s, you feel like it's it's kind of limitless and then your 30s you're a bit more, but by 40 you're like, I know how long, I can get a grasp of how long a 10-year block is and they obviously get sort of quicker relative. But also now I'm much more aware of like practically what you can achieve in a year but that being said you can achieve a whole lot in a day like you can climb a friggin mountain in one day if you choose to well might say it's downhill from here (laughs) on but i won't (laughs) we hope you enjoyed the show if you have a film you would like to recommend for us to review or you have any filmmaker questions please email lionfuryproductions at gmail.com Do join us for the next episode when we'll be taking a look at two music-related docos, Amy, the Oscar and BAFTA-winning film about singer Amy Winehouse, and an intriguingly described live documentary, Beastie Boy's Story. Until then, bye for now.